Luke chapter 24. You know, it wouldn't matter if I had days and days to preach to you on the resurrection. I still couldn't possibly um, cover all that's there or the implications of it. Because in so many ways, to be a Christian is to be living out the implications of the fact that Jesus died and has risen again. Um, And trying to bring that reality to bear in our world is really the calling of the Christian. Um, Sometimes we think about evangelism in way too narrow of a sense as just sort of getting souls saved so they can go to heaven. But Jesus didn't die just so that souls could go to heaven. He died so that this world would be a different place. He died to assure that, to ensure that, to make that happen. And then he baptized a group of followers and gave them this commission to take the truth, the declaration that Jesus is Lord of Lord and King of Kings, which was proven by the fact that he was raised from the dead, take that to the ends of the earth, teaching people to obey all that he had commanded. So the, the, the resurrected Christ is, is absolutely vital and is connected to everything that we do and are and believe as Christians. But we're going to focus on a couple things in particular tonight. And to do that, we're going to start by looking at Luke chapter 24, at God's Word, and go through the story again and then talk some about, about the implications. Luke chapter 24, start at verse 1. Follow along with me if you have a Bible. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. And then it lists lists some of these people. um, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they, the apostles, did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. 
In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. That's Peter. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And if you want to know where the story goes after that, I commend to you the book of Acts, which is part two um, of this story. So what, 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 is, what is all this about? What does this mean? We don't have a lot of time, but let, let, me, let me make some points about this. First, why does the resurrection matter? I remember a couple of years ago being asked to speak at this thing that the church I was part of at that time did for children called the Resurrection Trail, where they would have um, different stations where they would teach kids about what happened on Good Friday and Holy Week and then Easter. And I, I guess because I was one of the pastors of the church, got put at the empty tomb to talk to the children about what that meant. And I remember thinking, you know, what am I going to tell children about why this matters? And I remember really, to my shame, what I came up with was, what this means is that Jesus is now alive and so we can still talk to him. Which is true, but gosh, you know, there is so much more. But I will tell you, 
We talk a lot more about the crucifixion than we do the resurrection. And yet the reality is the crucifixion without the resurrection is not good news. The two guys walking on the way to Emmaus understood that. The crucifixion is not good news without the rest of the story. They were, they were crushed. We thought this one, this Jesus, this prophet, mighty in word and deed, was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And now it's three days since he's died. The resurrection is absolutely vital. It's also the missing piece that makes sense of how a bunch of Jewish men and women got from where they were, belief-wise, to what they became in the early church. There really is no other plausible explanation for how Jewish monotheistic men and women became the early church than the empty tomb of Jesus and the resurrection appearances of the living Jesus. Without those facts, the reality of what we have in the early church and since then can't be explained. Now, you know, I've been reading about this in really a book that's I don't know how to describe it other than magisterial. N.T. Wright, don't agree with everything he says, but this, this book in particular is powerful. 817 pages examining in exhaustive detail the expectations and understandings that people had about the idea of resurrection and life after death, not just in Jewish understanding, but in all the understandings of the other peoples and ideas that were floating around in the ancient world. And trying to understand what did this idea of resurrection mean when the early church went around saying Jesus is risen. What did they mean by that? And, and, and to help us get into that, you know, I'm going to try and summarize a couple points from an 817-page book. Um, so bear with me. And I didn't actually read all the pages, okay? I skipped hundreds of pages in the middle where he's exhaustively going through all the various Greek sources and Roman sources and other religions and whatnot. But, but here's a couple points that are really helpful and important for us to understand if we would understand why the resurrection is such a big deal. First, it's this. Some of the Jews, not all of them, but some of the Jews had come to believe in a future resurrection by the time Jesus was walking around on this earth. Some. The Sadducees, who generally were the ruling class of the Jewish leadership, did not believe in the idea of resurrection. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection, but what they believed about the resurrection was that it would be a one-time event at the end of time and all the righteous would be resurrected together. They believed in a bodily resurrection. They did not believe, the Jews did not believe that your soul would somehow go to heaven and sort of have this blissful existence after you died. They believed in a bodily resurrection, at least some of them did. But it wasn't really at the center of their belief. It was there, but it was sort of around the periphery of what was important and what they were hoping for. So that's kind of the first idea. Caught in with that, okay, was this idea, the word resurrection is only ever used by Jews before the time of Christ to refer to a bodily resurrection. 
Now, it's been popular among a lot of religious scholars, particularly in the last hundred years, to sort of portray this idea that somehow, somehow, and who knows really how, after Jesus had died, the disciples had some kind of experience. We're not sure what it was, but it was kind of a religious reawakening where they felt that they had new hope and that Jesus had been risen in their hearts. And they began to talk about this experience that they'd had. And eventually, after enough time had passed, people began to write down these stories and began to take this idea of Jesus rising from the dead literally. But the early church never believed that. They didn't believe that. What they believed was basically they were trying to give expression to this existential experience that they'd had. Now, you may not know this, but that's what's taught in a lot of divinity schools and a lot of churches, even to this day. But what N.T. Wright is doing in this book is saying that makes no sense whatsoever. No Jew in the first century would have ever used the word resurrection to talk about that kind of experience. It was a word they used, but they only used it in a particular way to mean bodily resurrection. But they did not think that what was going to happen was that one man would be resurrected and the rest of us would still be dying. So what they begin to proclaim about Jesus has to make sense of where they were coming from. In other words, to use the word resurrection, it has to make sense in the way they understood it. And yet, you have to explain for the way they don't still believe the way Jews in the first century did. And the empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus are really the key to that mystery. Um, The second point is that non-Jewish people, the Greeks and the Romans, did not believe in a bodily resurrection. They used the word resurrection to refer to bodily resurrection, but only to chide that idea and to say, we don't believe this. But for them as well, the word resurrection meant a bodily resurrection. What they thought was going to happen, though, was in a large, large measure what Plato taught, which is that the soul is imprisoned in your body, and when you die, your soul will be released from this pl- prison and go off to sort of this heavenly bliss. And there's different versions of that. But, but that was in general what, what a lot of the people who weren't Jewish thought would happen after you die. A lot of people actually thought when you died that you just died, and that was the end of it. And there's a lot of inscriptions on tombs and things that basically have little, little mottos that say that sort of thing all over the ancient world. Okay, so, you know, the belief of the early church that Jesus had been bodily resurrected is, a, is really a crazy, radical idea. It doesn't flow out of anything that anybody believed up to that time. The idea that the Messiah would die and be resurrected was not something they were looking for. And you see that as we go through this, this, pas- this passage. Everybody is shocked and kind of freaked out when the tomb is empty. They try to come up with some different explanations. Maybe the body's been stolen uh, maybe he didn't really, you know, different, didn't really die. There are different ideas that got thrown around. But when Jesus started showing up, they really were driven to one conclusion. This one who was dead has been brought back to life. It's not just like a corpse has been resuscitated. This, this one has been brought back to life bodily and yet transformed. And everybody is kind of freaked out and confused by that. 
There's aspects of which, okay, we recognize this is Jesus, but there's other aspects, and this is true in all four gospel accounts, there's aspects that are really mysterious and don't make much sense. I mean, he has a body, he eats, he says, touch me and feel my wounds, and yet he disappears out of the middle of of them. He appears in rooms behind locked doors. And you know what? The gospel accounts don't try to explain that. They basically throw it out there and say, this is basically what happened. Now, what's really interesting about this is the earliest accounts that we have of the resurrection of Jesus do not come from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Do you know where they come from? Paul's letters. Paul's letters are an earlier testimony to the Christian belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead than the Gospel accounts. And in Paul's letters, you have a pretty developed reflection and theology about what happened at the resurrection and what it means. But here's what's really interesting. When you read the gospel accounts, you don't find any of that theological reflection and development in the stories in the gospels. Now, what does that mean? What it means is this story of Jesus rising from the dead and being seen by all these people was so universally known, was so well established, that when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write it down in their Gospels, they basically tell it the way they've heard it told over and over and over again. It's really fascinating. Actually, all the way up, for instance, through Luke's Gospel, it's filled with Luke saying, this happened to show that this scripture was fulfilled. And and Luke's constantly saying, this happened because of this, and here's this scripture in the Old Testament that helps us understand this. But when you get to this story, all of those Old Testament allusions disappear. It doesn't mean that Luke didn't think that this was connected to to the, the, the scriptures of the Old Testament. He does, and he talks about how Jesus made that connection explicitly clear to them. Yet when he tells the story, he still tells it the way it was first told which goes to show us that what we have in the gospel accounts is basically not the result of the church kind of wrestling with this idea for 50 years. We have it the way it was originally told. In other words, this really happened. And it really happened the way the gospel accounts tell us. As a matter of fact, there's been a fascinating new book written um, arguing very persuasively that the gospel accounts are basically eyewitness accounts. That the reason, for instance, these women are named in Luke, but different women are named in a different gospel, in, in, in doing this exhaustive study of first century history and this, sort of the standards for how you write history in the first century, Richard Bauckham in this book on the gospels as eyewitness accounts proves, I think really beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the reason some people are named is because those are the people that Luke actually consulted And that those are the people who he was able to say, go talk to them if you want to know. In other words, what you have in the Gospels is not the product of a hundred years of anonymous little sayings being passed down until somebody gathered them together and wrote them down and tried to make sense of it all. What you have is the continual community story that's being told over and over again by apostles and eyewitnesses that are still alive. And as they're beginning to die off, it finally gets written down. So when you come to these gospel accounts, you have to deal with this. Who do you think Jesus was? The disciples thought they knew. The resurrection turned it upside down for them. 
And it made them go back and say, whoa, whoa. It made them go back to the scriptures. And Jesus, of course, led the way and said, hey, look at the scriptures again. And let me show you how this really was something that you should have been able to see coming, yet you didn't. But they they were faced with this fact that Jesus died. We saw it. And now he's walking around. Yet he's walking around in a a way that's a little mysterious to us, and we're not sure what to make of this. I mean, there's a, a story actually in the Gospel of John at the very end where he comes and he appears to these disciples who are having, uh, they're out fishing, and he makes them breakfast on the beach. You, maybe you've heard this story. And, and it says that they, they knew it was Jesus, but they dared not ask him any questions. And the Greek word used there is they dare not scrutinize him. But the, the clear implication is they wanted to ask him all kinds of questions. And this wasn't the first time he appeared. But as they're looking at him, the clear implication is Looking at this guy in his resurrection state raises all kinds of questions, and yet we're a little nervous about even asking him about it. We don't really know how to make sense of this. And you see that reflected in the way they tell the story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's this, we're just laying it out there. (laughs) He died, he's risen again, we saw him, he did stuff, we don't really know what to make sense of it. So, so what do we mean? What, what, what do we to make of this? If you're, if you're looking at this outline, I'm on the back by now, actually. You may be happy for that because I'm needing to move along. What does the resurrection mean for us? What is it? What, is, you know, what does it mean? A couple points about the resurrection. The first is this. The resurrection proves that Jesus who was who he said he was. The Messiah and the Son of God. It was the inescapable fact of the resurrection of Christ that forced his Jewish followers to go back to their Bible and read it again and see if they could make any sense of what had happened. And they began to find hints about this. They began to find things that began to put two and two together. But it was the experience of the resurrected Christ that made them go back to read the scriptures. They weren't looking for it. They were as surprised as anybody else. They had to go back and revise their ideas about the Messiah and the kingdom. And what's so fascinating is you begin to see all these passages in the Old Testament that talk about God bringing redemption And all of a sudden, now they're being quoted in the New Testament, except instead of it being God that is going to bring redemption, it's Jesus. All these places where it's clear in the Old Testament that the reference is to God the Father, all of a sudden, the early church begins to to basically interchange Jesus and God in their scriptures. Now, you have to know, the Jews were really radical about not changing the scriptures. They, They had this whole deal where if they, in the copying their text, the Old Testament, They thought that there was a mistake in the text, and they were sure because the letters that were written there didn't make any sense, didn't even make a real word. They still wouldn't change the text. They would go over in the margin and write what they thought the word should be, and then they would put vowels in the text to let you know, we're not sure this is really the right text. We think maybe there's been a mistake here, and you should look at this instead. They were very radical. If 
If, they, you know, if a child couldn't read the text and read it correctly, they would burn the whole scroll. They counted how many, num- how many letters were in the book of Isaiah, and if they didn't get the exact same number in their copy, they burned the whole scroll. If the middle letter in the, in the scroll of Isaiah wasn't the middle letter counting from both ends, they burned the whole scroll. They were radical. And yet, all of a sudden, these people who treated the Scripture that way begin to feel free to interject the name Jesus where the name Yahweh had been, a name that they thought was too holy to even say. Something happened. You know, now people say, well, you know, this account has this detail and this account has this detail, and so it's probably just all made up. Come on. Something happened. Something happened to change Jewish people worshiping, not on the Saturday anymore, but on Sunday. Something happened to change that. So the resurrection, what I'm saying is the resurrection changed their idea of who God was, of who Jesus was, and what redemption and his kingdom meant. And and N.T. Wright, I'll just read the bottom of this, the last part of this little quote that I took from him. Um, He says, basically, because of all this stuff that happened, um, this drew from the early Christians the breathtaking belief that Jesus was the Son of God, the unique Son of this God as opposed to any other. And then the underlying part of this quote. They meant by this, the early church meant by calling Jesus the Son of God, not simply that he was Israel's Messiah, though that remained foundational, nor simply that he was the reality of which Caesar, who called himself the Son of God, by the way, the reality of which Caesar and all other such tyrants were the parodies, though that remained a vital implication, they meant, in this this sense, that he was the personal embodiment and revelation of the one true God. And so, the resurrection calls all of us to wrestle with this question. Who do you say he is? Second, the resurrection proves that Jesus did what he said he would really do to give his life as a ransom for many. And the fact that he's not still in the grave right now proves that his sacrifice was deemed by God to be all that was needed for sinners to be reconciled. You know, as we heard Kristen and Justin's testimony, that theme keeps coming through. What a transforming idea it is when you realize that Jesus did everything that was required for sinners to be reconciled to God. That's why That's why when Peter preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 2, he describes, he describes, you know, he tells people they need to repent. But listen, the Bible in Isaiah 30, 15 says that repentance is the same thing as resting. That's why Jesus says, come unto me, all you are heavy and weary laden, and I will give you rest. The only reason the gospel can be rest, the only reason the gospel can be good news at all, is because Jesus is no longer in the grave, and that proves That when he said, it is finished, and breathed his last, it was finished. And there was nothing left for you to do. That you don't need to be scurrying around trying to get brownie points to get God to like you. You'll never be able to do that. You'll never be able to do that. And you don't have to. Now that seems kind of crazy and kind of radical. Well, it is. The resurrection is a radical idea. It changes everything. The resurrection as well shows that God is committed to physical reality. Jesus did not just die and then his spirit float off somewhere 
And if, if that had happened, we could still talk to him. But Jesus did so much more. The resurrection proves that God is committed to physical reality and to making it whole. Jesus did more in dying than just bring forgiveness to individuals. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 says this. It says that what God is intending to do and what he's doing is bringing all things together in heaven and earth under, under Christ. All things. He came in to usher the kingdom to triumph over the powers. Colossians 2 says it this way. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He came to do away with death itself. Hebrews 2 says it this way. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He came to bring reconciliation of all things to God under Christ. He came to call us to a future that is coming and it is broken into the now. And to commission us to be the church, which means to be the colony of the kingdom that demonstrates for the watching world that the resurrection changes everything and there is a new way to live. He didn't just die so that your soul could go to heaven. And he didn't just commission you to go try to save souls. He commissioned you to put this world right. And he died to make that happen. If Christ died for the physical world and not just for souls, then his people should care about the world he died for. The resurrection shows us the commitment that God has made to the world. And it calls us to adopt his agenda. Fourth, The resurrection puts us on a collision path with the world. And you can't read very far the story of the book of Acts without finding this to be the case. You know, here's the thing. A lot of Christians don't find that their beliefs put them in the collision course with the world that the early church did. And I think one of the reasons is because we've reduced heaven to be sort of floating in this disembodied existence on a cloud somewhere. And no earthly ruler is going to be threatened by that. But if you start getting up and proclaiming that this Jesus who you executed as a criminal is Lord and God over all things. Remember, Lord and God, a title that Caesar had taken to himself. And you start standing up and saying, Caesar's not Lord and God. This one that you crucified has been risen by God to prove that he is Lord of all. That's going to get you into trouble. And it did get them into trouble. The gospel has political implications. One of the great tragedies is that most Christians think that the gospel exists to make them nice. It's not true. A broken, bleeding, dying world doesn't just need nice people. It it, it needs a people who have been commissioned to take the victory of Christ to the ends of the earth, to take the implications of what this resurrection means into every area of life that does not manifest resurrection power. The Gnostic idea, see the Gnostics have this idea, like Plato, that that the soul is imprisoned by the body and that the body is bad. And I tell you, way too many Christians are more Gnostic than they are Christian when it comes to the idea of the resurrection and what Jesus came to do. 
But let me just say this. The Gnostic idea that Jesus died to take us away from this evil world to a heavenly bliss never threatened any earthly ruler. No wonder that Christians have had so little effect on our culture today when we have bought into a salvation that is so detached from physical wholeness for all of creation. A hope that sometimes calls us to stand up and tell the rulers of this world, whether they be political or whether they be cultural influencers or the people we look to to set the agenda, a hope that calls us to stand up and say they're wrong. That's what the resurrection means. The resurrection means that the world is turned upside down and and that the, the, the powers and the principalities are wrong and have been proven wrong. So why do we still listen to what they say? Right? So why does the resurrection matter to you? A couple last, last points here. I mean, without it, the story really is incomplete. Christianity is not worth buying into if Jesus is not risen from the dead. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are of all men, he says, talking about Christians, not just men, but women too. We are of all people most miserable if Jesus is not risen from the dead. But I don't know. It seems to me that a lot of Christians don't think much about Jesus being resurrected from the dead and are trying to just kind of go on their merry way without it. And so a couple questions for us to think about. Do we look like those who believe that Jesus finished the work of redemption? Or do we look like those scurrying around to make sure we can get enough brownie points with God to get into heaven someday? Think about your life. Think about what you worried about this week. Or last week? Do we look like those who believe that God is committed to this physical world? Or do we look like those who are biding our time in this evil world until we finally get to live a blissful, disembodied eternity on a cloud somewhere? What do we sing about? What do we hope for and long for? Do we look like those who really believe and like those who have been commissioned to declare that Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings to which every knee will bow one day? Or do we look like those who are content to carve out a little place in this world where we can be safe from unbelievers and all their evil influence? The resurrection gives us hope, but also the resurrection thrusts us in to a conflict with the world. Because the world wants to say that you can have peace and hope apart from Jesus. To which Jesus says, hell no. Right? He does. He says there is no compromise that can be made. If Caesar is Lord, serve him. But if Jesus is Lord, that changes everything. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this this truth, this reality, and yet we, we come to you and we have to confess that we believe it so frailly. We just are so weak in our conviction that you really rose from the dead and that even now you have triumphed over evil. And Lord, it's not just because of our weak faith. It's because we still live in a world where the full implications of your victory are not yet seen. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live in light of what your scriptures teach, of what we know to be true, of what Jesus has declared by his rising from the dead. We pray, Lord, that that reality would shape the way we live, the way we feel, the way we fear, the way we hope, the things we do, the way we spend our time. Lord, everything 
Would you help us to bring the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, into all of life? And would you help us, Lord, to have courage, the courage that can only come from your resurrection power, to believe that the gospel is big enough for this broken world? Lord, would you, would you help us to believe that you are committed to this world and that you care about it more than we do. And Lord, would we, Lord, would we be, have ears to hear and feet to follow your call as you commission us and send us into the world to bring this message that you have been made alive again, to bring that message to those who need to hear it. But let it begin with us. Lord, begin by convincing us that this message is real, it's true, and then help us to, to proclaim it by our lives, by our decisions, by our commitments, by our sacrifice, and by our words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.